Turn your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're in the fourth of a six-part series, The Future is as Bright as the Promises of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, and this is the Word of God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said that light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we are glad this morning that your word does stand. We're asking now for the help of your Holy Spirit to, to understand what you're saying to us as the church, fathers, the people of God. Uh, Father, so uh, give us good understanding, we pray, of what you've called us to do and to be as your people, we ask. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah, we saw last week, is pumped. He's ready to go. In his vision of the temple, he sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus whose glory fills the whole earth. Uh, And the impact is immediate. Realizing his unholiness, his sin... He disintegrates in the very presence of the holy, holy, holy Jesus. He then confesses his sin, and he receives forgiveness for his sins based on Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And when Jesus calls, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? He says, here I am, send me. And that sounds exciting until we read the rest of the story. We did in the, in the uh, Declaration of Truth this morning that, that the response to Isaiah from Jesus is, we'll go and say this people keep on hearing, but, but nobody's going to understand. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind so they, they can't hear or see. Uh, and, uh, and Isaiah's response is, well, how long for that? You know, till there's a great turnaround, great revival. Uh, he wants to know, uh, how long, Lord, how long will nobody listen to me? How long will we be doing this? Well, we know because we have followed Isaiah's life, the answer is a long time. Uh, in fact, Isaiah's ministry lasts all the way through the reign of Hezekiah uh, and down to at least 686 B.C. That means he, he served at least 54 years. And according to tradition, his, Hezekiah's son, King Manasseh, ordered him to be sawed into two. And so for over 54 years, his audience is not exactly responsive to his message. But Isaiah doesn't know that yet. So what keeps Isaiah going when nobody's listening? When it seems no one's responding? I mean, certainly we think his understanding of who God is and all his glory, this vision, his sense of being, uh, of, of being sent, of being commissioned, of being consecrated, uh, if he can just keep it fresh in his mind, that can keep him going for a while. 
but for 54 years? Uh, how could he coin? Especially if from the world's perspective, he's an absolute failure. What kept him going until King Manasseh orders his gruesome execution? And so what keeps us going is the people of God. What this morning keeps the actively persecuted church going around the world? What keeps us following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel in an increasingly pluralistic world where, where everybody uh, wants to have their own truth? What keeps us going when the world says they do not hear what we have to say? They want to, don't want to hear. What happens when the world says our message is outdated? What happens when the world tries to marginalize us by saying, you know, you're just a bunch of extreme right-wing fundamentalists? What keeps us going? Now, the simplest answer would be to say we're a commanded and a commissioned people. We have a 3,400-year-old command and a 2,000-year-old commission. Uh, we're commanded by God to love the Lord our God with our heart and soul and mind and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, and then as we consider that command, it leads to our commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do everything I've commanded you. I think Frank Barker summed it up this way. The church is called to evangelize, to baptize, to catechize, and to energize God's people. So how do we do it? How do we keep going? What keeps this church going after 149 years? As Isaiah faces the task and asks, how long do I do this? What will keep him going? Well, we know the Apostle Paul encountered great difficulties in ministry. Yeah, he kept going. And he answers that today in this passage here in 2 Corinthians by sharing from his personal experience five motivations that the church must remember, that Isaiah needed to remember, uh, to keep going, believing the future is as bright as the promises of God. So to get started, let's, let's go to the text. The first motivation Paul gives Isaiah and the church to keep going is to remember that our ministry is from God. Notice verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Literally, it says, since we have this kind of ministry, well, what kind of ministry? Well, Paul's been talking about the new covenant, uh, which is the, the ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit regenerates us by giving us new hearts and enables us to have faith to believe the good news of Jesus Christ, declaring us to be righteous before Him. And then He works in us. He works with us to make us become what we are, to make us righteous, to change us from the inside out so that we begin to become more like Jesus Christ. That God's done that for us as a demonstration of His great mercy. It's that mercy that we're called to tell His world about. Now, when we begin to think about the world's restlessness and guilt, we get a, a, a grasp on the privilege that is ours as the people of God. I mean, think about it. God could have used angels. God could simply write the message in the clouds if He wanted to. Um, he could have spread the message any way he wanted. As I alluded to last night from Numbers, he, he could use donkeys if that was his chosen method. But the fact is, he chose us. So we're to share the message. Not because we feel guilty, but because it's an awesome privilege to tell others what God's done for us. 
The Old Testament and the New Testament both tell us how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You've got beautiful feet. Philippians tells us in chapter 2 to, to, to shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. You see, Genesis tells us, Genesis 1, we are God's image bearers to this world. Now, sin distorts that image, but it's being restored in us by God. And so it's our assignment, it's our privilege, it's our responsibility, it's our opportunity to live out the gospel and share the greatest truth in the universe because people are dying without any hope if they do not hear the message. And that's what Isaiah sensed after this vision. And as we behold Christ, we want to borrow Paul's language from chapter 3 here, uh, we then desire to share Christ because we've been entrusted with the message of God. And so we keep going. The second motivation Paul gives Isaiah and us is to keep going, is to remember to keep the message simple. Look at verse 2. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning uh, or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, we're not certain exactly what Paul has in mind here. Um, but clearly, he's, he's telling us that, that some people are not proclaiming a clear gospel. Uh, perhaps he's talking about those who, who tie the gospel into to good works, obedience, trying to earn our way to heaven. Um, probably, he's certainly including those who, who try to suggest that there are some more challenging, deep truths that you really have to grasp in order to grasp the gospel. And that's not the case. Instead, Paul is saying that he does not twist the word of God. Uh, and in fact, there's no reason to because he says it's plain. It's easy to understand. Uh, and so then we who are messengers should be clear as well. Our daily walk, our motivations, and methods beyond reproach as we walk through this world living and sharing the gospel. So sharing the good news of the gospel is, is as simple as telling somebody else what God's done for us. Remember what Jesus tells the man whom he cast a demon out of in Luke chapter 8. He, sa- he simply says, return home and tell, tell how much God has done for you. The man was not required to give a, a physiological dissertation as to what happened to him with the demon being cast out. He merely had to share the great thing Jesus had done for him. And that's all evangelism is. Sharing the gospel, someone described it, is just one beggar to another beggar where to find bread. Isaiah's words will be the words of a forgiven man. A man just as guilty before a holy God as those to whom we go and offer life and death. So friends, the gospel is amazing, but can I tell you something? It's not rocket science, all right? The flipping jailer said, you know, what must I do to be saved as he fell down before Paul and Silas? And what did they say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and all your household. God's made the gospel simple enough for a child to understand it. And the simplicity of the message keeps us going. Then the third motivation God gives to Isaiah and to us as the church is to remember why 
people reject the gospel. Now, as Christians, we possess the, the greatest news in all the world. So why are we sometimes so quiet when it comes to sharing our faith? I expect one answer is fear. The greatest reason we, 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 we fear is how might people respond? I mean, maybe it's fear will not explain it properly. We won't be able to answer all their questions they ask. Yeah, the gospel's simple, but, you know, what if I get tongue-tied? That happens, you know. Um, maybe it's a fear we laughed at. You really believe this stuff? You believe God became a human and, and, and all that and died? Maybe it's a fear we rejected. People will dismiss us as, as fanatics and we'll be excluded, we'll be an outsider. Well, Paul addresses those fears in verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, people do not reject us. People reject the gospel. If UPS or FedEx or Amazon delivery person brings you a gift from a relative and you don't like that gift... All right, do you blame the delivery person? No. People may act as if they reject us. We may feel that way, but the reality is it has nothing to do with us. Let's not flatter ourselves to think we're anything more than messengers with a message. So these verses are incredibly free. They do not reject us. They reject the message and the one who is the subject of that message, Jesus Christ. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, it was not Martin Luther who was rejected. It was Jesus Christ. People are blinded so they cannot see. And the veil that's over their eyes is their own sin. Now Paul refers to God, Satan as the God of this age, not because he's a God, but because he's the ruler of all those people who are not God's people. In that sense, there are, only, there are only two types of people in the world. The people of God and those who are not the people of God. And if one does not belong to God, then by default, he or she belongs to Satan and serves him. And how does Satan bond them? He doesn't change tactics, really comes down to human pride. People who reject Jesus Christ, reject God's message, use a lot of pride. It may be deny being a sinner. You know, I'm just not a bad person. Or it may be, you know, I am a talented person. I can earn my way to heaven. I can do enough good things. Or I can choose to make my own way to heaven. I'm smart enough for that. Or maybe there is no heaven. I'm not worried about that. The fact of the matter is they simply do not believe. The light of the gospel, the glory of Christ is unknown to them. They look at Jesus and they might be intrigued by his teaching, by his example, but they fail to see that he's the eternal God-man. That is, in Paul's words to Timothy, the one mediator between God and man. That is, as Peter preached in Acts 4, uh, there's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Whereas Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one 
comes to the Father except through me. So let's not flatter ourselves, all right? It's not us people reject. It's Jesus himself. And when they reject the message, it does not change our responsibility. We are to keep going. Then a fourth motivation uh, to keep Isaiah going, to keep us as the church going, is to remember to focus on Jesus and not yourself. In other words, we do not take ourselves too seriously, and we're not to bring attention to ourselves, but to point to Jesus Christ. Friends, we do not want to do anything that obscures the message. So verse 5 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The focus of our preaching here at CNPC is Jesus Christ. If someone asks you, you know, what do the pastors at CNPC preach about? Uh, if Jesus is not your answer, um, then we feel miserably we've missed the target, all right? I mean, if I preach morality, how to be a better person, and I don't preach Jesus, then I, I, could, I could be at the synagogue today, or I could be at the mosque, or I could be at the motivational seminar, Somewhere to, at a hotel somewhere, you know. Um, we live in an age of where a lot of how-to books for Christians. How to be a better father or a better mother or parent or, or employee or, or prayer. How to deal with depression, all, all sorts of things. Um, and the scriptures do address and touch on all that, to be sure. And there's a place to comment on all those things. To get instruction on that because the Bible has a great deal to say about those things. But friends, I want you to know something. The Bible always relates them to the gospel. Paul, from the beginning of his relationship with the Corinthians, said in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The focus of preaching is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Charles Hodge said, When a person is brought to recognize Jesus as Lord, and to love and worship Him as such, then he or she becomes like Christ. You see, if we want to be a better, you can fill in the blank, parent, teacher, child, worker, whatever, then we need to get gripped by the gospel. Uh, We need to see Christ and, and focus on Him. And when we're gripped by the gospel, we see Christ as a servant. And friends, if we live like Him, if we live like servants, then we will transform every relationship that we have. For example, just heeding the admonition of Christ's likeness. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. If we put that into practice, that would radically change a lot of marriages, a lot of work environments, a lot of friendships. See, that's why the best thing we can do is preach Christ. I told you before about something that made a real imprint on me when I first went to Croatia 25 years ago. got to preach in a, in a little village there. Um, and, uh, you know, when you preach in a, uh, a, a culture with a different language, um, it's always a question, you know, what should I preach? Um, and so I, I, I generally choose something that I know pretty well. And uh, so I, I chose one of my favorite verses, Zephaniah 3.17. But for the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. 
He will take great delight in you. Uh, he will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So I preached on the love of God, uh, knowing it was, it was a culture uh, and a people torn apart by war and hatred and, and bitterness. So, you know, after a woman comes up to me and, um, and, uh, and she said, I'm frustrated because you visiting preachers from the West, uh, uh, like me, I think she meant, um, preach simple sermons to us. Uh, and uh, she did go on to say, she said, you know, though there's a woman here whose husband recently died and, and she found your sermon very helpful. Because um, she's been asking a lot of questions about the love of God. And so I, I've thought about that a lot over the years. And I certainly don't want to insult anybody with, with simple sermons. Uh, and so maybe I should have dug a little deeper into my files onto something on superlapsarianism, infolapsarianism, I don't know. Um, because to be a believer before the 1990s in Croatia, uh, that came at considerable cost. That made you an outsider. And this village had, had, every night during the war, the bombs had fallen all around them. They had to go into shelter for, for months. Uh, that was just a couple years before this. Um, you know, some of y'all used to wear those bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? As pastors, we wear WWPP, what would Paul preach? Um, and, um, and the answer is what? Preach Christ. Um, now, was, was the lady wrong? I'm going to say yes and no. Uh, no, because uh, we're, we're, we're never wrong to, to hunger, to know God better, to know His Word better. But she was wrong. One, to think I could really be any deeper. That was a mistake. Um, but, uh, but also, uh, you know, we never get beyond the gospel. Certainly, we never get beyond dwelling on God's love. Um, if we ever think we're beyond dwelling on the gospel and God's love, then we're in dangerous territory. God's almost a half a century now of ministry that we, we never ever beyond the gospel of grace that we daily need to apply to our lives. For example, why is there such a crisis today in this area of areas of, of self-image, self-esteem, and, and self-identity? Very simply, we're not gripped by the gospel. We're gripped by science that says we're blobs who can morph into whatever we want to be instead of by the gospel. This says we're made in the image of God and we're redeemed by the infinite God who demonstrates his love for us on the cross. In Zephaniah 3.17, whether I preach it in Croatia or here in the United States, it portrays the love of God that Jeremiah describes as an everlasting love. And friends, that's the greatest subject in the world. And so the best we can do is preach Jesus as Lord. And that's the gospel. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, that God's raising from the dead, you will be saved. Now that statement, Jesus is Lord, declares two things. One is a faith statement that we, who we believe Jesus is, that is who He says He is, that He's God, that He did what He said He would do. He died on the cross for our sins and gives eternal life to all who believe in Him. But second, it's a, it's a, it's a faith commitment to say He is Lord, to say He's my King and I commit myself to obeying Him by obeying His Word. To say Jesus is Lord is to indicate I trust and obey. And so our role then as servants who go forth with the message of the King 
And so we, Jesus is the focus. He's the message. And with Isaiah, we keep going. And finally, Paul motivates us and motivates Isaiah by keeping us going by focusing on the glory of God. Verse 6. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You know, Jonah was not a happy preacher. From the world's perspective, he was successful. But that's only because he was faithful. And it's God who saves people. God told Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. And the pattern was established in creation itself. Genesis 1 tells us, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void and darkness was over the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God uh, was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. So there you have the Holy Spirit brooding over the waters, as it were. When the Word of God comes to, to bring forth light out of darkness and chaos. See, in the same way, salvation is the work of the Spirit in our lives. As the Word of God is heard and it's understood and believed. The gospel is God shining His light uh, in our hearts so we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Himself. And that glory, the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament that dwelt in the, in the temple and the tabernacle, uh, that dwelt between the cherubim uh, over the mercy seat, that came down on Mount Sinai, which Ezekiel saw depart and leave. You see, it reappeared in Christ. And though it's veiled to the world, the operation of the Spirit of God makes the glory visible to us so that we grasp the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the glory Isaiah saw. And John writes that they beheld the same glory when they saw Jesus. John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory so that's what the gospel is about. It's beholding the glory of God displayed in Christ. It's not about us or about our, our lost world even. It's about God and His glory being on full display. We're the beneficiaries to be sure of that. But it's first of all about God. So that's why we sing, to God be the glory. Great things He has done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that we may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. So come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory. Great things He's done. So what about us? I'd ask you this morning, has the gospel gripped your heart so that you keep going no matter what? Uh, has, it, has it gripped our, our, our church's hearts so that we seek to engage God's world? If we have no desire to share it, then perhaps we're not gripped by it. Do we believe it? Have we embraced Jesus as Savior? Lord? If not, I would, I would urge you to do so today. And how long will we keep going? Well, Paul's answer is clear. We're to keep going as long as God leaves us here, no matter what challenges we face.
We keep going as a church to a gospel-resistant world. As we remember that our ministry is from God, we remember to keep the message simple, we remember why people reject the gospel, we remember to focus on Jesus and not ourselves, we remember to focus on the glory of God. I trust we'll be a church that remembers uh, so that we do realize uh, a future as bright as the promises of God. Season the opportunities that He daily puts before us as we walk with Jesus. A church that focuses on Jesus until His return. And the new heavens and new earth that Isaiah pointed us to this morning, and we saw throughout the book of Revelation, becomes a reality. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for the glory of the gospel revealed in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that when we look at the world that resists your message, and you've sent us out, Father, as a, as a church or as individuals, Father, we're sent people. We're commissioned, we're consecrated for the task. Father, give us the strength by your Spirit to walk with Christ, to show Christ, and then, Father, to share what Christ has done for us. Lord, is anybody here that doesn't yet know the joy of knowing Jesus? Today, show them your Son. Show them your cross, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.